my friend, is going to speak on Exodus, Lessons from the Desert. Looking forward to hearing what you have to say. I don't think I've heard you speak. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you first for Nate. Thank you for the blessing he is to us here. We thank you for his willingness to take time to prepare, to teach. I ask that his thoughts would just come together as he as he speaks with us, that your Holy Spirit would be on him. And for us, Lord, that our hearts would be ready to hear what it is you have to say, that you would drop kind of um, just nuggets into our heart that we can hold on to and take with us. Thank you for your love and that you're with us this morning. Amen. I've got a mic. Good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, today, of course, as Gordy and many people have mentioned, is Palm Sunday, um, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. I thought I'd mention it and show a couple depictions of, uh, of that painters have done, depicting the event to a couple different styles. And just in my research uh, uh, preparation for today, I've, I, I noticed that uh, not everyone was really uh, sure what was going on back then. Uh, for example, here, Jacob the stutterer told me it was Palm Palm Sunday. So I think there was a little confusion. Um, but even today, though, I've noticed, such as uh, young Keanu Reeves here, what if we have been misinterpreting Palm Sunday all these years and we're supposed to wave the palms of our hands? So hopefully someone has explained to him since his bill and Ted's excellent adventure days what the meaning of Palm Sunday is uh, really about. But anyways, a little humor to begin. We'll be focusing on uh, Exodus 34 today. Um, and this is what I'd like to do, where uh, I'd like to take us today. I'd like to briefly first track certain points of Moses' life up to Exodus 34. And then from there, look at Exodus 34, look at a certain part of it. Uh, Moses' radiant face and veil. Very interesting things that uh, I've uh, kind of found, and hopefully it is for you as well. And then the third part, I'd like to jump to the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul reinterprets Exodus 34 in light of what Christ has done. So that's kind of where we're going today. Um, Both Exodus 34 and 2 Corinthians 3, they're fairly complex passages, and I'm just going to touch uh, lightly on a few points there, but I encourage you to, of, of course, at home, uh, do your own study as well. So let's begin. Uh, Exodus uh, 2 is where we meet Moses, of course, born to Hebrew parents in Egypt at an early age, of course. He was uh, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, as we know. Uh, as a grown man, he was educated in Egyptian courts. And as he was walking around in uh, the town he was in one day, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. He remembers his upbringing. He is a Hebrew. He takes offense. He kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. Pharaoh finds out about this, wants to kill Moses. 
makes Moses a fugitive. Moses takes off to Midian, hundreds of kilometers away. This is where he spends the next 40 years of his life as a shepherd has a couple kids. And then he has the burning bush experience. Exodus 3. This is the first direct conversation that we have uh, of God speaking to Moses. God says, Moses. Moses says, here I am. God says, I am your father. Something like, well, not exactly that. He says, I am the God of your fathers. He does say that. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at this, Moses hides his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now remember that. His first interaction was one of fear. He didn't want anything to do with God's purpose for him to be the agent through which God would deliver uh, the Israelites from Egyptian oppression. And he debates with God. As we know, he, he describes his ability to communicate. He's like, you know, I really speak well. I, I'm not eloquent. I have faltering lips. He likes using this word faltering lips a lot. So he's trying to debate with God, but eventually he agrees. As we know, God sends Aaron with Moses back to Egypt, back a hundred kilometers, hundreds of kilometers back to Egypt to the scene of the crime, as it were, scene of the murder, but the pharaoh that was in power is now passed on. And he goes back and he goes to talk to the new Pharaoh and says, God says, let the Israelites go. Pharaoh says, no. And so makes things worse for the Israelites. So it's not exactly a banner start for Moses here and his new job as the deliverer of Israel. You know, the, the person he is to try to sway, Pharaoh, is not listening to him. The Israelites, the people he's trying to help, don't want anything do with him because he's making their life harder and harder. Bricks without straw. So again, he goes, he's like, God, what's going on? As, as anyone would. You're on this mission to God, and you start it, and things are getting worse immediately. And it's like, again, he brings up uh, the phrase, I cannot speak. You've chosen the wrong man. I have faltering lips. I can't do it. He has no confidence in his ability or God's ability to do what God says God is going to do. So, uh, of course, we have the ten plagues. The Israelites are finally released. Uh, God and Moses lead them out of Egypt, right towards a huge body of water, the Red Sea, of course. Pharaoh changes his mind. He pursues the Israelites. Israelites are they panic and they cry out to Moses. And Moses um, says something that demonstrates a change in his thinking. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord is bringing you. So we see Moses growing in trust in God and what God can do and how God will back up what God says he is going to do. So as we know, God parts the sea. Israelites make it across. The Egyptians don't. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord, it says in Exodus 14, when they saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust 
in him and in Moses, his servant. So they're starting to see him as a leader. But as we know, the Israelites' trust in Moses and God is a very fickle thing. So they wander in the desert. Very familiar place to Moses, who spent 40 years tending sheep in the desert. They wander around. Moses starts to delegate some authority. Uh, he gets, rises up people in the Israelite uh, people to help him judge disputes. Another mark of growth in Moses, of maturity and leadership. Uh, they reach Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, God comes down on Mount Sinai like fire and calls to Moses from the fire. So we have a parallel here of the first call being from a fiery bush, and now God is calling to Moses from a fiery mountaintop. Exodus 20, when the people, the Israelites, saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled in fear. They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. And again, Moses says, do not be afraid. It's again a big change from his fear in Exodus 3. The Israelites have not had the same relationship uh, that Moses has had with God, the same experience. Even though they've seen the pillars of uh, cloud by day and pillars of fire by night, seeing all this, they don't have the same experience, the same trust that Moses can. It is growing again in his leadership of the people and um, his relationship of trust with God. So on the mountain, the Ten Commandments are given. We have the golden calf incident. And with its ensuing, uh, with uh, the golden calf incident, we have the ensuing judgment. Um, forgive me for those who haven't been here for previous Sundays. I'm just kind of really going quickly through to plot some points. So um, God, after the golden calf incident, he wants to destroy them all, and he wants to start over with Moses. And we see in Moses' response another growth point for him, as Gordy pointed out. Moses intercedes on behalf of the Israelites. He pleads for God on their behalf, saying, if you don't forgive them, blot me out from your book. Destroy me as well. He also pleads for God, you need to go with us. We are your people. You need to go with us to the promised land. God gives this assurance in Exodus 33. He says, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Now this phrase, I know you by name, this suggests an intimacy that has been developed between Moses and God. Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses says, Now show me your glory, God. Now he's asking to see the very face of God, that, the, the very face that he was afraid to look at in the burning bush. Now he wants to see God up close. So it's quite a progression, quite a journey Moses has been on from Exodus 3 to uh, our text today, Exodus 34. From fiery bush to a fiery mountaintop. Relationship has deepened. Trust has been established. It's not like Moses knows exactly what God's going to do at any given point, but his trust is in who God is, and that has deepened. And uh, Moses' trust in God's ability to keep his word and do what God says he's going to do. So, that gets us to Exodus 34. 
Um, I want to focus on the second part of it, so I'm going to sum up the first part for us, and then we'll look at the text of the second part of Exodus 34. So uh, the first part, the Lord has, uh, tells Moses to cut, cut out two new stone tablets in preparation for going back up the mountain. I'm going to give you the law and the covenant again. And so Moses does this. God calls Moses back up the mountain. Um, God declares uh, aspects of who he is to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, who is, I am loving, I am compassionate, I am gracious, I am slow to anger, I am abounding in love and faithfulness. He reaffirms, God himself reaffirms the covenant he has with Israel, that he will go with them. And he mentions some of the covenant laws as this reaffirmation of his promise. And Moses spends another 40 days with God. He spent 40 days, the initial first time up the mountain, and now another 40 days. He writes out the word of the covenant on stone tablets. And that gets us to the second part, Exodus 34, Moses' radiant face. And I'd like to read it and then talk a little bit about it. So, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back on, back over his face, until he went in to speak with the Lord. And as I mentioned, it is a complex passage. There's a lot going on here. Um, I want to focus on one part on the word uh, radiant. You can see in bold and underlined there. Now, I found a very interesting thing. Uh, the words, uh, verse 29, 30, and 35, all three of those words, the Hebrew word behind it that is used to mean uh, to emit rays, to shine forth, to emit beams, that kind of thing, which we know to, radiant to mean, it has a slightly, uh, has another meaning that's slightly different. It has that meaning, but also a different meaning that we only find in this passage at one other place. And the connotation of this word, the other meaning is of someone having or displaying horns, like cow horns. So it means shining forth, and it also means to have horns. And it's only here and one other place in the Old Testament. I found it so interesting. The other place is in Psalm 69. I'm going to read it for you. I will praise the name of God with song and shall magnify him with thanksgiving. And it will be pleased the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. In that passage, the word for horns is the exact same as this. And it's interesting because uh, in the uh, 
uh, past history of the church, they've interpreted uh, Moses as having actual horns. Uh, that's Michelangelo's depiction of Moses. It kind of kind of looks a little scary, to be honest, doesn't it? But they they interpreted it as having literal horns. It's so interesting, I thought. So what is going on here? Like, why are these words, uh, this Hebrew word, used here to describe Moses' face? I mean, there's so many other words in the Old Testament that uh, the writer could have used that simply mean uh, beams shooting forth. For example, Psalm 50, it says, From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Or in Isaiah 9, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Upon them hath the light shined. In those verses, it simply means what it's, we would imagine it shined to mean. The light coming forth from um, uh, the light from God. So it, let me explain why this is going on in another way. If you think of an author who's writing a book, and in this book, the author has to describe a smelly situation like dirty socks or a skunk walks by and they have to choose a word to describe this and the author chooses the word stinks and he uses that word every time to describe a smelly situation in the book but there's one situation where the author chooses to use another word and he chooses the word fishy and which can mean smelly or it can also mean that something going on that is suspicious or doubtful. So I, that's kind of, I think, what's going on here, is every other time in the Old Testament, there's been, the, they use different words that only have a very straightforward meaning. But here, it's got this other complex meaning. So I, um, let's look at other uh, uses of the word horn in the Old Testament, see if we can unpack this a little bit. Um, I'll read to you Second Samuel 1, verse 1. This is after Samuel was born to Hannah uh, as a result of Hannah's prayer. It says, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts and triumphs in the Lord. My horn is lifted up in the Lord. It's like, okay, it's interesting. Does she have like an actual horn that she's lifting up to God? Or what's going on? Okay. Psalm 18, David speaks of the Lord. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Um, and probably pretty doubtful that David thinks actually he's holding God in an actual horn on his side. Of course, we would see these passages in a metaphorical sense. In these passages, horns represent salvation, or strength, or authority. And the Hebrew word for horn in the passages I just read is very closely related to this word here. So all that to say is I think there's a double meaning going on that the writer wants to communicate that any Hebrew reading the scripture would have picked up on. He wants to communicate that there is actual light and a radiance, as we would think, uh, beings coming forth from his face and... With that, there's authority, strength, and salvation of God coming down with Moses at the same time. So, if you have Moses coming down from the mountain, you picture him with another set of stone tablets, shining and radiant. 
uh, beams coming from his face. And also he has the horns of authority or strength coming with him. It's God reasserting Moses as the leader, I think, as well. Of course, we've had the golden calf incident. The, the Israelites um, saying to Aaron, we don't know about this fellow Moses. He's up in the mountain. Remember the first time he was up there? We don't know how long he's going to be gone. And so they, they really had, uh, you know, they, again, as I mentioned, they were fickle in their ability to trust Moses. So God, I think, um, is, uh, as he comes down, reasserting Moses as the leader of the Israelites. And he's also, God is also reasserting himself through Moses as the true one to be worshipped. The true horn of their salvation, the true strength, greater than any other golden calf with actual horns. And also, God connects the law that Moses is bringing down with radiance, with it is light, it is authority, it is strength and salvation. So, I don't know, I found that very interesting. I don't know if anyone else does. I hope you do. <laughs> but again, it is a, a, a complex passage to inter, uh, interpret. But I think what is not debatable is that it made an impression on the Israelites. I mean, they were afraid. There was something going on to Moses. Um, uh, they, I think they did see the presence of God on Moses. And because of what had just happened with the golden calf, they associated that presence with judgment. And so that was intimidating to them. So let's move on now to uh, the veil. Oh, wait. Yes, sorry. I went ahead a bit too quickly. So we see in uh, the second part that Moses put a veil on his face. Now, why what might he have done that? Was it like if we looked at the sun, like, uh, you know, when you look at the sun, of course, you can't look at it because it's so bright. Was it something like that? Well, maybe. Um, one scholar writes this, though, about it. He says, the veil of Moses made possible for the glory of God to be in the midst of the people without judging and destroying them. So it actually became an expression of God's protection and mercy. So let's unpack that a little bit. Um, we remember that Moses was up in the mountain with God for 40 days. And he asked to see God's glory. And God told him, oh, you can't see my face and live. It's just not possible. Um, it's not because God is mean, God is withholding, it's because he is God. A perfect, holy, just, good, totally other, all-powerful being that we can only partly describe with our words. Um, I mean, he descended on Mount Sinai and the mountain shook. I mean, we're not talking about a simple uh, few megawatts of electricity. Um, I, I remind, actually, when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a, a time Kate and I were in Abbotsford, and we went for a jog in a park. And in the park were these huge iron towers, you know, those big, huge things, 100 feet high, that carry electrical cables across miles and miles and miles. Well, they were going through this park, and Kate and I ran underneath them. And it was winter, and we, as we went underneath, 
it was considerably warmer underneath these towers. And I mean, the cables weren't like here, they were high up. So there, and you could hear the hum of electricity going through these cables. And I just, I thought, I mean, this doesn't even touch what's going on here. It gives you a sense that like, there's power going on. This is the God who spoke the world into being. Can we, any of us make something by speaking it? Um, it's unbelievable. And this God, this all-powerful God, allowed Moses to look at his back. Unbelievable. I mean, it's a wonder that Moses didn't blow up right after that. Really. Let alone have some of God's glory and authority come on him. So, as we see in verse 34 to 37, it seems like this practice of protection and mercy of this veil coming down so that he could be amongst the people with God's glory, uh, remain with Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. I mean, Exodus 33 talks about this and, and gives us a bit better indication, Gordy, Gordy mentioned, that Moses would meet with God in a tent, not just on Mount Sinai, but Moses would go into the tent of meeting, cut cloud would come down, Moses would take the veil off, speak with God, come out, speak, and put the veil back down. And he would speak with God, it says, um, as one would speak with a friend. So interesting. It seemed like a regular thing Moses would do. Anyway, I'd like to jump ahead now to 2 Corinthians, uh, to the New Testament, and uh, look at uh, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 7 to 18. Again, this is another complex passage. There's a lot going on, and I'm just going to touch on a couple things on it. So, uh, so, verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved on letters of stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, would not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious. If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what, if, if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. A ah, lot going on. A lot going on. So, we have Paul's reinterpretation of Exodus 34 here. And all the Old Testament references here all the Jewish Christians in Corinth, uh, who this letter is addressed to, would have picked up on this. And generally speaking, in Paul, 
uh, all his letters, he's unpacking what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection really means for people. Okay, so if we go back to the first slide here for, uh, and verse 7, we can see that the, uh, Paul sees the old law, the old covenant given to Moses, engraved in letters of stone. He sees it as coming in glory. He, he says in verse 9 that it is glorious. But he goes on to say that if that was glorious, what Moses received, the old ministry, the old covenant, the new ministry, the new covenant with Jesus, what he, Jesus is ushered in with his death and resurrection, that comes with surpassing lasting glory. And Paul is an agent of this new age of the Spirit, this new covenant. And this new age outshines the most glorious revelation that was previously known, which was the old covenant or the law. So Paul doesn't demean the law. He says it came with glory, but what now has come has simply outshone what was before. The old covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus with a new one, an eternal covenant with us. So, let's look at this slide here. I've bolded uh, the veil words in this slide. So because of this new covenant that has come with surpassing glory, Paul is bold. He is not like Moses, who put a veil over his face because, as Paul interprets it, the glory on his face faded he did not want the Israelites to see that it was fading away. Now, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, given what we've said about the veil already, um, scholars interpret Paul's point to be, uh, or one interpretation, is that the glory on Moses' face was rendered ineffective by the veil. Basically meaning it stopped the destruction of the people that otherwise would have resulted, which is the problem uh, of the, the, the Israelites' hearts, or the, of people's hearts in general now, that their hearts are hardened. Moses had to veil himself because of Israelites, Israel, Israel's sin and hard hearts. And, excuse me. and Paul, Paul further reinterprets the veil in verse 14 and 15, speaking of those that do not turn to God that the reading of law and scripture, scripture is, uh, becomes as a veil to them because of those hardened hearts and minds. And it's only removed when we turn to Christ. The gospel message has no effect until those who hear turn to Christ. Then the spiritual blindness falls away. Interestingly, there's a couple of verses that parallel each other in both chapters that speak about this veil being taken away. Exodus 34, 34. But whenever he, Moses, entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And then 2 Corinthians 3, 16. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Um, I was reflecting on this in my own life and thinking about, do I really believe the veil is gone. I feel at times that there's a barrier between me and God. And that's not true. It's not. It's gone. But I still think it's there at times. And I think it's more to do, definitely to do with me than what is actually true. Um, 
For anyone that turns to God, the veil is taken away. The barrier is gone. We can look at God's glory. We can see him face to face through Jesus. We have seen him in Jesus. We do in the scriptures. Some other thoughts on this. As God's glory was on Moses, God's spirit now is in us, in believers. And it's a transformative spirit. It transforms us, it says, um, in ever-increasing ever-increasing glory. Ever-increasing suggests a process for all of us. It does not suggest an end, and it also suggests time. I mean, Moses was up there two different times for 40 days each time. I think there's a connection with time with God and transformation. And because it seems that when we are with God, we become like God. We are called as believers to ever more and ever increasingly reflect inwardly and then outwardly Jesus. We are transformed now from the inside out. So to sum up, as people turn to Jesus, when they truly seek to know who he is, the veil is removed. We do not need to fear God's glory destroying us as the Israelites did. We can enter God's presence freely. We can contemplate God's glory. His presence that was mediated through one man, Moses, to one people, the Israelites, is now available everywhere through the sacrifice of one man, Jesus. His presence that delivered one covenant to Moses on tablets of stone delivers a superior covenant through Jesus written on tablets of our hearts. His presence that descended like fire on trembling Mount Sinai, that descended like tongues of fire at Pentecost in Acts 2, that same fire, that same spirit dwells in each believer as a seal and a promise. His presence that was once known intimately by few in the Old Testament can be known intimately by all now in the New Testament generation. God said to Moses in Exodus 33, I know you by name. Jesus says in John that he calls his own sheep by name. We are those sheep. God God knew Moses as a friend. Jesus knows us as his friends. I ask myself and I ask you, do you, do I know him as a friend? Do you know him as a friend? Do you believe the veil has been removed? Let's take a moment and then I'll close with a prayer.
Lord, with unveiled hearts and minds, we thank you. I thank you for using uh, my faltering lips. Um, I thank you that we do not need to fear you. Thank you for removing our veil. Help us not to fear your presence. Let us, uh, Lord, rather be awe-filled with you, for you are awesome, God. And you are good, and you are loving, and you are compassionate, and you are full of mercy, and you are just. And there's no contradiction in those terms. Continue to work in the deep places of us, God. The fire that you planted inside of us, that you speak to us through. God, help us. Oh, we need your help. As we seek your face, God, as we spend time with you, God, help us to believe that you are changing us into the image of your Son and that this is a process over time. Thank you, God, that you're patient. Come. Amen. Feel free to uh, continue to sit and reflect. And, um, I'll be up here if anyone else would like prayer, and I'm sure there'll be other people up here to pray too, but uh, if anybody else needs to um, get going, please feel free to. <laughs>